Hi guys, it's Annie McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, Ben will be chatting to Dr. Ryan Crotin, a baseball health performance and scouting consultant, who is also the vice president of armcare.com, amongst other things. Ryan is a professional immersed in baseball, academically, technically, and practically, with spells at the Los Angeles Angels and the Baltimore Orioles. So today's guest will obviously have a fantastic depth and breadth of knowledge, so you're in for a good one. This episode of the Informed Performance Podcast has been sponsored by Vol Performance, makers of the Force Frame. Used by health and performance professionals for assessing and improving performance and rehabilitation, the Force Frame is a powerful solution for quickly and accurately testing isometric strength and imbalances. In addition to testing athletes, the Force Frame is also used to maintain and improve strength, offering over 130 isometric training protocols. As a portable and easy-to-use system, the Force Frame is designed to ensure every measurement can be accurately and reliably measured, time after time again. To learn more about the Force Frame, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. You're listening to the Informed Performance Podcast, and here is today's conversation between Ben Ashworth and Dr. Ryan Croton. Welcome to another edition of the Informed Performance Podcast. My name is Ben Ashworth, and today we've got Dr. Ryan Croton on the show. It was a real pleasure to meet Ryan a few years back now in uh, Las Vegas, of all places, uh, where we got our heads together with a we're a bit of an echo chamber, as you'll probably find out from some of our conversations that will come from this discussion, uh, especially around training and how to train a pitcher's shoulder. Uh, we hit it off there and we were basically put together by a mutual friend of ours, Tim Pello, who's just the best guy for connecting people. So thanks, Tim. This has worked out really well. And it's a real pleasure too to reciprocate Ryan's invite to come on his podcast a couple of weeks ago that episode of More Than Velocity out soon. And now to get you on here, mate, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. I I'm really appreciate it, uh, Ben. I'm a big fan of yours and uh, I consider you a friend. And nobody says my name quite so eloquently uh, other than you. It's, it's nice to hear my name in a British accent. So <laughs> people in the industry call me Crozzi. Um, when I'm, when I'm in baseball, but, uh, I I'm just glad to be able to talk, you know, performance with you and, and hopefully give your audience, uh, some good information. Absolutely. I'm sure it will be. So for people who don't know you, Ryan, can you just give the listeners a little bit of an intro or background around your journey to this point and what you're currently doing at the moment? Sure. I'll, I'll try to summarize it as quick as possible, but, um, I uh, started playing baseball at the age of nine years old, and I, I fell in love with the game. And uh, I could throw very hard for uh, a young age. And around 11 years old, I developed Little Leaguer's Elbow. And uh, it, it really kind of sidetracked me where the physicians told me, hey, you know, if your son said this to my mom, if your son continues to pitch, there's a good chance that he could break his arm he could have an avulsion fracture with the amount of inflammation that's around, um, you know, his elbow. And, and so that got me started on the path of, you know, how can we, how can we improve the health of throwing athletes, you know, knowing that this is such a violent event in a violent, uh, mechanical movement. Um, and so, you know, I really got interested in this in school and, and at 13, I started training 
and I love strength and conditioning and it made my body feel better. My, my arm didn't really feel sore. Um, I, I just saw the value in training and, uh, that led me into, to my college, uh, years where I played collegiate baseball and studied in kinesiology. And I got a little bit deeper into motor learning and biomechanics and, um, played a little bit of, uh, 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 instructional league ball and independent league ball. And, um, I, you know, I really valued, you know, keeping the body healthy and, um, I came home, parents wanted me to become a medical doctor after playing baseball all over the world. And, uh, I had then, you know, started studying the strength and conditioning journals that came out. I started looking into them and I got very interested into sports science and applied to the university of Buffalo, where I had done a doctoral degree in biomechanics and exercise physiology. So I had both of those components because I was interested in fatigue and how it changed movement and how those changes in movement may change loading to the throwing arm, um, and change the mechanics. And, uh, you know, through that experience, I had met some, some great people in baseball. I started working for the St. Louis Cardinals as a strength coach, um, in major league baseball. That was the beginning of my career in professional sport and um, had later on, on been hired by the Baltimore Orioles as an assistant major league strength coach and an athletic performance analyst. And I really learned some new ways of training. We had involvement of Olympic lifting and gymnastics, a lot of different things that are, you know, just scratching the surface in baseball today. And um, people are very fearful of, but uh, we had a, a solid training program. And then I had gone back to do a postdoctoral fellowship at, at the University of Pennsylvania in their orthopedics department for their uh, medical school. And we set up this, this pen throwing clinic and it was this tiny little clinic in a medical building. And we were evaluating athletes for musculoskeletal health. And we were also doing um, biomechanical analysis. And I, I started to see how everything fits together how strength properties influence mechanical properties in throwing athletes, how training influences athletic qualities that, that also tie in. Um, and while I was there, the Los Angeles angels reached out to me and, and said that they had a position available for me um, as the player performance coordinator, which means that I would oversee minor league strength and conditioning for about 280 athletes and the coaches but they also wanted me to be involved in scouting and they wanted me to be involved in development of throwing programs. And I, I worked with some great people there and uh, was promoted to the director of performance integration where I was overseeing strength and conditioning and sports science towards the end of my time there with, with the angels. And um, I really fell in love with dynamometry there because I saw the value of strength testing and specific strength testing for the throwing arm. And this company came around, uh, armcare.com. It came on my radar where they were developing technology that was portable to evaluate the throwing arm. Um, and they have an IMU chip in it to evaluate range of motion. So I thought, man, this is a really interesting technology. And I reached out to them and I realized they needed some development and they need some education around the product. And that's where I am today as the uh, vice president of the company. That's a very broad in-depth career to date for sure and obviously some huge insights that you've grabbed hold of along the way i think we came into contact when you were doing your dopey role yeah <laughs> your director of performance integration obviously not how it sounds but we 
we came across each other. Then you invited me in to come and talk to your team around exactly that, this this concept of shoulder evaluation and looking at force production as one of the real important aspects of performance whilst also looking at lowering likelihood of injury risk. And that's certainly where our discussions initially kicked off. We'll put a pin in some of the stuff you're doing around arm care because I've been listening intently to a few of the bits you've put out there on LinkedIn. But first of all, let's dive in and start with some of your doctoral findings around stride length, if we may, and the way you consider how the body moves and the effects of fatigue. For me, it's really interesting stuff. So it'd be nice if you can share some of those lessons learned with our listeners. Sure. So, you know, my research at the University of Buffalo, I was, uh, my PhD uh, program, my chair was Dan Ramsey, Dr. Dan Ramsey, and I uh, published with him. And when I came into the lab, you know, he was a lower body uh, movement specialist and he was looking at uh, arthritis um, and and shoe wedges. And he said to me, you know, um, I know your passion is baseball, but we have to have a lower body perspective in your research. He said that this is my area of expertise. Um, but you know, we need to kind of come together and figure out what is the right approach. And to me, it just, it really kind of struck a chord with, you know, the most fundamental aspect of throwing is the stride, you know, that's how we, we generate propulsion. That's how we develop bracing. Um, it, it sets up the timing of everything. And so I started doing some piloting with, with some athletes that I knew and, uh, thank God for them. They threw thousands of pitches for me to create my model and my uh, my my research question and design. And I realized when I was looking at this is that, you know, stride length is something that's generally self-selected. And um, in my experience in coaching, I also coached at the college there at, at the division one level for baseball. We were we were changing the way our pitchers would stride. We would not only change them where they located on the mound. Um, we changed the direction of their stride. We changed the length of their stride. And I kept thinking to myself, there, there needs to be more biomechanical and physiologic analyses around this. And so it really set the stage for me to take on this, this huge project. I think we had eight studies. A typical PhD um, study streamline is about, it's, it's about three studies in one. You have three aims. You have a central question. You have three aims of research. And I had eight areas across um, fatigue and stress um, uh, markers, biomarkers. I evaluated saliva and blood. Um, we had functional strength. So I looked at forearm strength, functional forearm fatigue, and wh- how this is affected by stride length changes. Um, we looked at kinematics. We looked at momentum analyses. We looked at timing of events. Um, we looked at forces and joint powers uh, and, and competitive measures. And what I found was that these athletes, it didn't matter how they strided. I, I, I changed their stride length um, pretty adversely in um, these simulated games. And, and they, they're so good, even at the high school level, of self-organization. So that means like when the athlete changes these, their stride length strategies, they figure out ways to maintain velocity. Now, I didn't look at I, I didn't look at command, basically accuracy measures. But when we looked at, you know, the basic element of performance of velocity, these athletes could change the way that they move so, so greatly and not have a change in their velocity. And that told me that on the biomechanics side of things, 
you know, we, if we're looking at velocity, we may not be able to detect these changes in lower body mechanics, you know, so that clued me in that compensation is a real thing as it relates to fatigue and then evaluating fatigue, you know, looking at your cardiovascular output, looking at um, stress hormones, looking at uh, lact, uh, lactate uh, involvement and, and blood glucose um, changes, you know, the, by changing an athlete's stride length, you can, you can definitely affect the internal fatigue. Um, and what we had recently been published is, is the functional forearm strength loss that can occur. So there's, there's some uh, musculoskeletal fatigue that's regional that can occur with a change in stride length. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just been a, an unbelievable experience putting out research. Now I hadn't had a chance working in professional baseball to, to spend time and, um, and publish, but we're starting to put some pieces together and how fatigue, a change in lower body mechanics, um, uh, affects the delivery. And the main thing, when we think of the lower body and the stride, it does two things, a longer stride. It puts the athlete in the air longer before their foot hits the ground, their lead foot. So it increases what I call the generation time. So that the force, the impulses, they can be created, they can, they can be developed over a longer period of time before the, the bracing happens. Um, and then, you know, uh, on the opposite side, if an athlete has fatigue and shortens their stride, even at a small level, the percentage of time that they're in the air and propulsing, it reduces. And so they lose linear energy. They lose kinetic energy going into foot contact. And what happens is with, with a shortened stride, you know, whether this is poorly coached and not optimized, the athlete then has to make up that lack of momentum, that, that uh, linear momentum. They become very rotational. And when the athletes, you know, increase the rotational momentum, it creates more leg at the throwing arm. And the leg of the throwing arm, when it gets further behind the scapular plane, especially as the arms laying back, it puts much more stress, you know, uh, on the uh, anterior shoulder and the elbow. And it can lead to, you know, Tommy John risks having their ulnar collateral ligament um, potentially uh, sprained or ruptured as well as slap tears. And so, um, you know, all of these connections just coming from how our feet interact with the ground uh, has been just a tremendous experience and, and it's kind of led me to, to thinking that, you know, these mechanical changes could be occurring all the time, you know, whether they're, um, at a gross level or they're at a very small minute level, but the athletes, you know, rep to rep are changing and you add the, uh, the fatigue element. If the throwing arm isn't strong, it may not handle the compensations. And so, you know, that's kind of my message strength matters most to me because all of these changes that are going on all the time mechanically, if we can ensure that the distal chain being from the shoulder to the fingertips are as strong as possible, you know, we have a, a, a better opportunity to distribute the stress that's applied to those sensitive areas in the throwing arm. So, you know, I'm starting to get going for this biomechanics world to training you know, and, and really where I want to be, I'm a strength coach in a practical sense, but I want to be at the intersection of strength and coordination. You know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, I, it kind of irks me when I hear strength and conditioning, 
you know, strength and conditioning coaches, SC coaches, you know, for me, it should be strength and coordination coaches. How can we improve the way we train to, um, to impact biomechanics in a positive way, to resist mechanical stress in a positive way in throwing athletes? So I know that was a long winded answer to your question, but I had to thoroughly give you my perspective on, on stride length and its impacts on performance. Absolutely no complaints from my end. You know, I like listening to you talk about the biomechanical side of things. And I think that it clarifies some stuff that we talk about. We talk about the kinetic chain. We talk about this ground up approach to throwing and actually by optimizing your lower body contribution, you can offload your shoulder and upper limb. But there are times when under fatigue states, you have to have that buffer of strength and force production capacity in the upper limb. And I think certainly from the outside looking in, I feel that there's this reluctance to actually load the upper body. It's probably around those things where we, we feel we don't need to because we're generating the force from the ground and transferring it to the trunk and providing this propulsion. Why would we need to get people strong in the arm? But you and I, as I said, are a bit of an echo chamber for each other around arm strength as an integral part of arm care. I'm really interested what your thoughts are around best practice in terms of training the pitcher's shoulder to cope with the demands of throwing. Oh man, this is this is a this is a loaded question. I'm, I'm trying to think about where to begin, but but let, let's just start with the absurdity of how throwing athletes are trained. You know, my experience in professional baseball has been interesting, um, and I started out in 2008. And my last year was, you know, essentially 2021 so far. And uh, the training has not changed, which is frightening. And, and the biomechanics are becoming a lot more advanced, a lot more detailed. And, you know, I'm just going to give some, some impressions so that people understand how much load is actually in the arm and throwing. So um, when you go into layback, a 90-mile-an-hour pitcher, when they put their arm into layback, maximal external rotation, it is like hanging a 70 pound dumbbell in your hand, um, off your hand, hanging down. That's the kind of load, um, the bending load that's put on the elbow. You know, if you can imagine, I got a rope, I'm holding this 70 pound dumbbell in my hand and I put my arm all the way back into external rotation. That's the kind of load that happens in pitching. And then after you release the ball, you know, just, you know, moments after you have your highest compression force of the shoulder. And that force is typically over a thousand newtons for a 90 mile an hour fastball. And that is for most pitchers, their body weight. So imagine putting someone's body on top of their fingertips. Um, and that's the kind of load that's being distributed through the shoulder. And yet it, it baffled me that when we train the, the athlete, you know, we are utilizing three pound weights or cuff weights that have lower radiation that five pounds. We're, we're not giving the athlete, I believe what they need as far as, uh, as developing a, a, an appropriate strength program for their throwing arms. The other thing is it's highly volumetric. There's a lot of reps that are performed in a particular setting. So there's a couple programs out there. One's very famous called the Throwers 10. I think it has over 300 reps or 350 reps in a session. And athletes are doing this, you know, five to six times a week. Some of them very high volume based work with little attention to strength. So, 
you know, the acronym that I utilize for training the throwing arm is SPEAR. So strength, so that's important. So that's isometrics, eccentrics. P, that's power or push rate. So we we test with armcare.com. We're going to be testing rate of torque development. So we're looking at, you know, how, how explosively the force can be produced. Then we have E, which is endurance. And it's not the decay of strength and endurance. It's the endurance of repeating maximum strength and rate of torque development. We want to see how can we provide repetitive efforts at these maximum levels, which is what's throw, what throwing is often. Then we have A in spear is asymmetry. We need to focus on the combination of strength, you know, from the anterior shoulder being the internal rotators, the external rotator cuff, from the pronators and supinators, the flexors and extensors of the forearm. You know, we need to understand how these asymmetries um, need to be cha- trained because quite honestly, a lot of our programs that are, we're seeing out there for arm care, they could be feeding into uh, strength deficits and imbalances because they're not evidence-led. They're not individualized. So the asymmetry part is so important. And then we have R and that's range of motion. The reason why R comes at the end for me is that there's not a heck of a lot of evidence that range of motion has an influence on performance. Um, there is some evidence on health, but the differences in range of motion are, are minimal. So essentially, you know, what's something to keep in mind with an athlete, and, and we see this internal rotation, but um, if we see uh, the throwing arm having less range of motion, and uh, you know, total arc in general, elbow extension, um, than the non-throwing arm, that gives us a means that we may need to influence change there. However, I caution external rotation uh, um, stretching because it can increase the bending of the elbow, especially in layback. You're giving it, you know, if it's a catapult, you're cranking on it even more. You're allowing there to be more laxity in the elbow potentially. Um, So there's, you know, there's some issues there with that. But the spear concept, the spear concept in my mind, it summates what we need to do. And to be honest, where we are focused mostly is on the E and the R. We're focused on endurance and not the right way. We're focused on low level, low activation, lower radiation based endurance and heavy range of motion uh, emphasis. And um, to me, that's a recipe for disaster. You know, if you're if you're increasing range of motion, which happens over the course of a baseball season, that's been really well known in research and, and what I've seen as well. The external rotation gains in season, sometimes more than 15 degrees. It can be pretty pronoun- per- profound. You know, if that's not coming with an increase in strength, you're increasing the length of the rubber band but you're not increasing the strength, the internal stiffness that the, that the tissues have to have. It's a recipe for disaster, Ben. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent agree with you. I was just thinking back to when you said a thousand Newtons, it's like having a body on the end of your arm. Well, that's, that was my journey with British judo where they were actually throwing bodies at probably around a thousand Newtons on the end of the arm. Yeah. But I think this idea of putting strength first I mean, neither of us are saying that you shouldn't do some of the good warm-up and preparation and some of the decent drills that get you in good positions and activations and those types of brilliant basics. But I think it's just about the amount of time you spend, the bang for buck. If you're going to target something, don't waste time doing a load of high volume, low intensity, when actually the, the sport itself is 
high intensity, you know, and, and you need to have the ability to produce force to protect the joint and also to be able to perform. So focusing on not only force production, but also rate of force production. And then your other piece that sits in there nicely is the sort of coordination piece, which you brought up at the start, which, okay, how do we efficiently generate and transfer those forces that we're producing? But it's definitely something that people look at in different ways. And you go into different baseball teams and they'll all be evaluating things in different ways. So my next angle of questioning is, when you're looking at this evaluation monitoring piece around the throwing shoulder, where do you think we go with that? If you've got a cohort of major league pitchers and you're looking at them across a competitive season, as an example, what would you do? If you went into an organization tomorrow in terms of capturing some of those things we've been talking about. Yeah, the first thing. So remember, it's, you know, the programming starts with S in SPEAR. And the first thing that I'd be looking at is what are the strength levels? What are the absolute strength levels that are produced by the athlete? Um, you know, hopefully, you know, what, what we test is internal rotation, external rotation, scaption and, and grip. And then we do a long lever test for acceleration positions and deceleration positions. But I would want to be able to collect information in a lot of different joint angles for isometric force at the beginning. And I would, I would want to determine what athletes, once I figure out the absolute strength, which athletes uh, are low relatively. So, you know, you have, you have so many different athletes in professional baseball from the ages of 16 to 40 plus. Um, and they're all producing very different forces. You know, the 16 year old may not have the same regional strength as a 25 year old um, who has greater muscle mass and greater cross-sectional area to provide force. However, you know, your 16 year old, you know, who you bring in might be 145 pounds and your, you know, 25 year old might be 225. And relatively, relatively, that 16 year old could be stronger. And, you know, there's two divisions and looking at, and, and this is what I've seen in my experience as a sports scientist. Absolute measures are much better for performance, you know, in baseball, you know, swing speed, um, their, their, um, run, their acceleration times, um, their throwing velocities. But when it comes to relative strength, that's so much more impactful for health because now it tells you there's, there's some normalization to the actual body. And so that's the first place I would look is, is relative strength and absolute strength. I'd be testing those first because a lot of things would build off that from, from there. You know, the next thing that would be brought to my attention, you know, would be what is the asymmetry potentially between the athlete um, um, from their front to back of their shoulder. So, you know, sometimes you'll find a lot of ER dominant pitchers. You'll find a lot of guys that are stronger in their external rotation uh, strength to internal rotation. It's kind of reverse from what we would think. Um, and I, I first look for those guys because those guys that could have deficiencies in IR, they may not be stabilizing their arm well enough into external rotation from their internal rotator cuff that could lead to slap tears. So slap tears generally are peelback mechanisms where the arm is laid back in external rotation and uh, the twisting of the bicep tendon pulls the labrum off the glenoid. And when the bicep has to do much more work, to stabilize external rotation, that's a result of having weak internal rotator strength. So I need to look at that first. And the other thing too, is that the loads for the elbow are highest 
just before maximal external rotation. So the loading of the elbow is highest as the arm's laying back, um, not as it's coming through in acceleration. They're actually lower torques. And so that valgus torque that we talk about that opens up the elbow needs to be managed through having strong eccentric internal rotation strength. And um, a lot of people in the industry are a little reluctant to go there, but I, I first look for who's ER slanted. I want to know all the pitchers that are so, that are ER dominant, um, greater ER strength above five percent. Uh, I want to know those those athletes right away and start putting them on a remediation program. Then, consequently, if the athletes are less than 0.85, um, so that their ER strength is less than 85%, which is much higher than literature in baseball. Baseball literature has them between 0.67 and 0.74. It's much lower. But the guys that don't have the 85% mark, we need to improve their ER strength because there's like a, a governor on the arm acceleration. Your body kind of inherently knows that I can only accelerate what I can decelerate. You know, there's this kind of that old adage. And so those guys are very low on deceleration, you know, and a lot of these injuries, whether you're looking at the, the back of the, uh, the shoulder or the front of the shoulder, um, you know, there, there are deceleration injuries. So, you know, a bulk of my training would be eccentrically driven with these athletes. And, uh, then I would look at their velocity characteristics. So I would look at, you know, what is the maximum velocity that this athlete can produce? And so when I know that, now I'd be looking at the absolute strength of the athlete. You know, what's the, the total force that could be produced by, by the arm? And I com combine all my measures and, and just get a total metric measure. And I want to start tracking the ratio of strength to velocity for athletes because if their velo goes up, so they throw harder and their strength goes down, to me, that's also an injury risk uh, waiting to happen. And, and it should be intuitive, you know, like... You're, if, if your muscle strength gets weaker and your velocity uh, gains, you know that you're getting most of these from elastic properties, not neuro, not neuromuscular in a, in a sense of contractile strength. You're, you're using stretch loading and um, that, that, that elasticity without strength could be a problem for health. So I'd be looking there. The other thing that I'd be doing with, with a team, and it doesn't, it's not done very much, um, athletes are generally left alone for monitoring after games. People usually say, okay, they pack up, everybody wants to shower, they get out of the clubhouse and on to the next day. And usually your monitoring happens when the athlete first arrives to the, the field. That's wrong, in my opinion. I, I think after uh, games, you know, we need to, after they come out of a competitive outing throwing, um, or even a bullpen, we should be assessing their, their post-throwing fatigue. We need to know, that's how we should be designing workload. We need to know how fatigable was their their outing or their experience so we have to understand that you know how what kind of strength is retained and there i'd be looking for athletes that have less than 10 percent strength loss from the recovered state uh test you know um i'd be highly focused on that and then you know the last thing is you want to look at the arm recovery and you have to have a pretty stringent approach to when you're going to test in a recovered state in a baseball season you know, usually that's the bullpen uh, for uh, for starting pitchers, the bullpen day. That's the highest form of training in their week. Um, they should be recovered for that. And you want to assess that strength beforehand um, and make a determination if you need to change the pitching load. And obviously you've done your post-pitching analysis of their strength and you can design the right uh, bullpen setting for them. Um, and, and so, you know, you need to know in this fresh state, 
has strength returned? Are they stable? You know, and if, if you're not seeing an improvement in their recovery strength, if that's going down, you need to have a conversation with the athlete. You need to talk to them and say, Hey, you know, what are you doing for your, um, your, your nutrition, your hydration, your sleep? Um, you know, there's going to be some, some, there's some disturbances in the recovery. So, you know, those are some key metrics, you know, for me that I'd be looking at, um, when it comes to, uh, the strength qualities and, you know, it's the nice thing is our app, uh, does look at those, those features. And for those that have other dynamometry, uh, equipment, like they can start looking at this stuff now right away, you know? Um, so long-winded again, but I hope I gave enough context. That's fantastic. And obviously you're preaching to the converted with me, as you know, but it's really good to have your thoughts on what you would do given a blank canvas. I think just a couple of things from what you're saying there, which I wanted to clarify, I've actually got some of my own questions. When you talked about the external rotation slanted athletes, so the guys who are slightly stronger there, what position are you, are you talking about testing in there? Because, because that matters, right? Of course. Yeah, of course. So, um, you know, essentially what we do is we look at, you know, this fixed dynamometer position. So we've realized that, you know, I working with the angels and, and some other teams, you're handing off players to different clinicians and these clinicians that do manual muscle tests, they're all different with the same athlete. You know, there's, there's one, the, the athlete for people might not know about these manual muscle tests. The athlete is usually either doing a fixed test, like a make test where they're pushing into the, um, the clinician who's stable and providing a stable base of so the clinicians pushing into them and they're holding a fixed position or the clinician is doing an overcoming test, uh, or a break test where they're pushing them into, uh, kind of an eccentric load. We do a fixed test because we want the athlete to have a very consistent standard. It doesn't matter what level they're at. Um, you know, we're getting data that's, that's very similar. It's not biased based on the strength levels of the clinician. And in that, we are utilizing the zero degree position, you know, and inherently, you know, people, you know, should know that at that zero degree position, there's, there's kind of the optimal length tension relationship that you can apply the most force, whether you're pushing back from that zero degree rotation or into the wall at zero degree rotation. Um, even with our scaption test, we're in the scapular plane, um, but we're not getting past 90 degrees of shoulder abduction. You know, so there, it is definitely joint specific, but, you know, in my mind, what can generate the most standard data that's easiest to, you know, aggregate that can give us better quality data for predictability of injury? And, um, you know, that that particular uh, position um, makes the most sense. Now, you know, could you you could definitely the dynamometer that we have, you could definitely experiment what it would be like in a in a 90 90 position. If you wanted to uh, examine strength there, um, but I can tell you your strength levels will be lower. It wouldn't be at the same capacity um, that you could apply at a zero degree position. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a labor of love of mine that I sit there in uh, in the lab using a, a fixed dynamometer in Prague, and I put my shoulder in different length tension relationships and see the difference in those positions. But I think it's worth reminding people of that thing like there's a lot of the literature and how you apply it 
certainly you talked about these kinds of original ratios of somewhere around 0.66 to 0.75. And that, as we know, is from isokinetics and often with the arm by the side. So when you start to take people out to around 90 degrees of abduction, you don't see that at all. And in fact, having worked with some teams now across a competitive season, got some decent data on ER to IR, you are right. I think that's ballpark around 0.85 is something that you could use to draw a line in the sand where if you're not at the ratio of ER to IR, then it's seen as a problem. Uh, The other thing I suppose is interesting is you're evaluating them. You're making an objective decision. You're not just saying we're going to put a blanket external rotator loading program on all of our throwers because that's what happens in the throwing motion. You're working out specific imbalances and saying, no, okay, 70% of our players are IR dominant, but by the way, 30% aren't, and they need something completely different to help them improve that balance, improve that coordination and the force capacity across the joint. Yeah, I think that's something that's definitely worth kind of highlighting at this point the next thing is well so what you find out that these guys have this imbalance so what are you going to do about the training side of it because that's that's the key thing what are you going to do to improve direction specific force production around the shoulder and how do you target that yourself yeah i mean you know the the one thing that we need to do and you kind of hit the nail on the head is individualize and in the individualized program, it, it's a must. It's a must in baseball. The general, everybody does the same thing. I mean, I've seen it. I've seen it time and time again. It does not prevent injuries at the same level of, of targeting specific strength qualities. Um, but every athlete needs a conjugated approach. And a conjugation model means that it's a mixed approach to training. Um, you know, they definitely need some IR work. They definitely need some ER work. But the emphasis can change. You know, um, for example, if an athlete is lacking ER strength, well, the protocols for eccentrics um, and isometrics make most sense to that program. An athlete that has ER, you know, pretty decent ER strength um, and has a good ratio, they may be working on more ballistics. They may they, they may not need the same emphasis or the same uh, time under tension. So you, you can have the same two athletes. And you could give them a, a protocol. One athlete does uh, one one set of six with six seconds isometric um, holds. You know whether they're using a dumbbell or if they're pushing in, if they they could utilize their dynamometer push into the wall um, as a as a training device. And uh, another could have two sets. You're increasing the time under tension. You know it doesn't mean that you completely abandon one than the other, but you can change the relative. Um, uh, time under tension and emphasis of, of loading um, for each athlete. So it, it's all it's all athlete dependent. Um, it definitely needs to be conjugated. Um, you cannot throw out the baby with the bathwater. You can't just say, okay, we're going to abort worrying about external rotation strength because if you do that, then all of a sudden you know you're going to you're going to then put yourself further into uh, an imbalance. But you you need to understand which way on the imbalances you want to work. And again, with the spear model, um, you, you can determine, you know, does this athlete need rate of force work? So he's, he's ER deficient and he needs rate of force work. Okay. Well, that helps me design a program around that. He needs those qualities, you know, an athlete might be, you know, completely different. Um, but, uh, that mix 
is important with, you know, your key emphasis. You have to un- un- understand, you know, what are going to be your customizations, you know, and, and everybody's going to have a different order of operations. I know what I mentioned first is absolute and relative strength. They matter most. It's the S and the spear model that I, I focus on. Um, and, and, you know, we have to, we have to integrate that into a, you know, the appropriate training format. Um, so I hope I answered that. Okay. Yeah, you did. I was also thinking, obviously, when I'm listening to you speak, there's a lot of things that are coming out of the conversation. You spoke about a bit about this idea of immediately post-throwing and that kind of recovery profile of, let's say, a, a, a starting pitcher. That concept we've sort of described as session cost. And it's pretty commonplace now to look at that in lower limb and hamstrings and that recovery after high-intensity actions with sprinting. But it's a model that, to me, absolutely suits high-velocity throwing actions. And not just looking immediately post, but looking at the profile of 24, 48, 72 hours, because traditionally some people like to throw a bullpen on day two. If their force production isn't back, or even probably worse, if force production's crept back up, but their rate of force development is still lagging behind, which is what we tend to see, then they go into a bullpen and throw it maximally. They're putting their shoulder under unnecessary stress, right? Is, it, is that something that you, you look at or is that something you've seen in baseball, like, you know, the Angels or other places? Uh, I will say I'm not going to specifically specify the team, but most teams, in my opinion, just kind of getting an ear to the ground, talking to people, they don't really have a post-game process. Um, and, and part of the reason is, you know, a lot of the major league teams, they lack manpower. You know, if you think about um, a minor league team, it's not set up well for sports science and, and monitoring, really, because you have one athletic therapist, you have one strength coach. Generally, after games, the strength coach has some players that are training after games, and the athletic therapist is providing treatment to players, right? So there's a lot of missing data there. Um, the teams could actually get away with having somebody appointed a new personnel an interdisciplinary role, I think would be important as a strength coach and an athletic therapist to, uh, to be able to evaluate the athletes after outings. And, you, you know, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head. A lot of pitchers are different. Some pitchers like a bullpen on day three, some on day two. The key is to have consistency where they have their bullpen in your measurement. And there's nothing wrong with a pitching coach saying, hey, you know, your your strength hasn't recovered very well. Let's push your bullpen till tomorrow and reevaluate. I mean, that's kind of the thing that we want to do, you know, and, and people need to be adaptable in the sport of baseball. And I've, you know, I've worked with a lot of athletes who have had chronic injuries and, and the athletes who I see have chronic injuries are the ones that stick to a program most. They're methodical. They're regimented. They don't shift. They work to the prescription exactly as it's written. And um, we need to be adaptable because that's what physiology, you know, needs. We need, when we're not going well, you know, if, would you put a, would you put a Formula One car on the road when its tires are bald? You know, it's just to to us, you know, you you and me, it would make common sense. But in the baseball world, it's very hard to make all those adjustments. You're managing a lot of players, but we have to get there. We have to get there to keep our players healthy. We need to do the post-testing. So in, 
in in baseball in the community of baseball there's a, there's a really high interest level on external workload you know tracking uh loading of the throwing arm tracking the number of throws you know pitch counts all of those things to me personally they're not really effective means to uh to reducing injury what we need to understand and i i've said it to you you know strength matters most we have to understand the neurological condition of the athlete, we need to know what strength is, is uh, how it's responding to what we're asking this, the athlete to do. And we need to utilize these po- these pre-strength tests to manage what we give the athlete because we don't have a crystal ball. And I, I guess the example that I want to give and why, you know, so much frequent testing both on recovery days and after pitching are so important, but to, to give you the depiction between external load and internal, the structure of the arm. If we're tracking external load, let's just say it's a bridge, you know, external load tracking would be, we're counting the amount of cars that go over the bridge as it rolls over a force plate and we're measuring its weight. So we have the intensity of the load and we have how much of the loads coming on um, to this bridge. But the problem is with external load tracking is we have no understanding of the state of the bridge. We're just assuming that if we give the, the bridge less, it's going to be healthier or we give the, the bridge more. This is what it needs to improve. It's, it's this tissue tolerance and resistance to injury. And to me, I don't think that's the right approach. I think we need to know how does the athlete respond, respond to the work we give them neurologically um, and, and, and anatomically. And I also think that we need to, to test our athletes prior to any training day and pivot. You know, if your external workload system tells you an athlete, this is what they need to do that day, but their strength is down by 15%, you know, they've lost more than 12 pounds of strength. There's something going on there. Like that would be ridiculous to, to give them a 40 pitch bullpen, you know, in season when that occurs. And, and if we don't get to that level, man, we're, we're not going to see, improvements and injuries. You know, I'm a biomechanist by trade and exercise physiologist. I, I, I really slant myself towards strength. I really see strength as being much more of an impactful measure to prevent injury than I ever do for motion analysis, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Sing that. Um, as somebody who spent most of their career as a physical therapist, I'm also, you know, drawn towards force production as one of the key, if not the key factors out there. And as you say, that's right. I think one of the things that I thought about then was just, it does require a lot of vision. It does require a lot of backing from a forward thinking organization to put in place this sort of proactive monitoring system. The two of us are very data driven. So obviously when you listen to this podcast conversation, you're going to think, well, hang on a second you know, what if I don't have all these bells and whistles at my fingertips? But I think, you know, we're, we're, we're in balance, aren't we? We're in a world where we're trying to balance science and compliance. We don't want to turn players into lab rats, but we do want to get some actionable data so we can make some decisions and inform what we do. It's largely around the thought process and not the technology is the key thing. And then it's about infrastructure. What can we cope with and what's our capacity to deliver it? Do we have the manpower? Do we have the organizational vision? Are we going to get players to come in after throwing and immediately evaluate their shoulders? Are we set up to do that? If we are, fantastic. 
If we're not, what's the compromise? I think scaling that back a little bit, we've had some conversations before around just gym-based markers of strength, right? I remember one conversation we had where we were talking about just like a single arm dumbbell press, you know, and, and looking at that as a marker of almost protecting yourself against injury. And I remember we had a conversation to say that you can set some body weight targets around that, that we should see as a standard for upper body force production. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So, so in evaluating uh, strength and, you know, a lot of, I'm also a, a research associate at Louisiana tech and Auckland university of technology, but at tech, we're, we're looking at things like this. We're looking at all these different strength profiles of how, you know, athletes, um, uh, strength could influence, you know, performance. We're talking about weight room numbers that, you know, are quite easy to, um, to achieve. And remember I said before that the relativity of strength is much more impactful to health than the absolute force. So for example, if, uh, you know, a, a pitcher who weighs 250 pounds, you know, can, can press, you know, 200, 200 or 200 pounds, you know, opposed to another, you know, we're talking with dumbbells in each hand for a hundred in each hand, but opposed to now you have someone who's pressing 200 pounds and they're a 180 pound athlete, you know, their relative strength is so much higher that it it definitely has to have an involvement of what the the tolerance of strength can handle in throwing. You know, weaker weaker athletes. This is this is what Tim Pelote said to me, and it's it's just so it's it's so profound, and it makes so much sense. But weaker athletes are easier to kill. Weaker athletes, weaker athletes, um, their inflammatory cascades are greater. So you know because they they have less muscle, muscle strength and size, their stress loading is higher. So think about it. If, you know, the equation of stress is force over cross-sectional area. If I have less cross-sectional area, meaning I have less muscle mass or tendon uh, thickness, um, up, and I have very high loads, you know, my stress is going to go up, but the, the more uh, muscle hypertrophy tendon strength that I can uh, achieve in an athlete, that means the applied stress, the applied force is going to be less relative to my cross-sectional area. My stress is going down, you know, and so our training, our training has to be built on the premise that we, we need to make our athletes as strong as possible, you know, and they have to be able to handle their body weight. They do. I mean, even, even look at the vertical jump, you know, in my experience looking at athletes that have, you know, different soreness patterns around their arm or chronic soreness patterns or have been on the injured list. A lot of them have very low measures and lower body power. And to me, it's like, like no SHIT, you know, if they, if they don't have lower body power of where are they going to make up the, the, the energy generation? Of course it's the arm. They don't have enough that's being transferred through the pelvis, the trunk into the, the throwing arm. And so, you know, if, if we're not, I, I think it would be very unusual in professional baseball now to find strength coaches that don't even measure, you know, a vertical jump. Um, you know, something as simple as that, like you, you're seeing, you know, what is the general elasticity of the athlete and their power? And, and you can use, you know, I think a great equation is a Sayers formula. It's been around for like, you know, 20, maybe 30 years um, that you can just, you know, take in jump height. You can plug in 
the athlete's body weight. You can get a relationship between body weight and, and uh, you know, their, their mass and their elasticity and understand, hey, this athlete needs more lean mass. This athlete needs more lower body power. And, um, you know, combine that with your strength measures and dynamometry, you know, you make their, their arm as strong as possible. You're improving their lower body power. You know, you're improving momentum in their delivery. You're probably going to have a healthier, better performing athlete. You can look at things like standardized, uh, standard deviations of velocity. You know, how well does the athlete sustain velocity? I get, I get more excited by that than looking, you know, just at maximum levels, you know, you know, talking about an athlete, oh, he hit a hundred miles an hour in a game one time. It's not as exciting for me as, you know, how close is this athlete in their velocity capacity and able to sustain it over the course of the game, you know? Um, that's important, I think, is in uniting competitive metrics to these physiologic outcomes. So there's so many ways that you do not need expensive technology for that. I mean, there could be, there should be simple things. It would not be unusual for anybody in professional baseball or even college baseball listening to this, that their pitchers can't do three pull-ups with a hang for one second. You know, right there, that should tell you that there, there is some global weakness, you know, um, you know, especially in the lat region. Um, it's just, it's just crazy to me. You know, there, there's just, there, there's a lot of strength information that can be gained, um, to improve the health and performance of athletes, you know, globally. And, um, there's so many great strength coaches out there. I talked to, um, a great, uh, strength coach today named Zach Deshaunt at TCU. And, you know, he's got like 10 years worth of data. Like this guy is, he's just got so much stuff and any strength coach can collect this. We're talking before they must've had a big technology budget, you know, um, you, you, you can utilize the stopwatch. You can, you know, jump mats are relatively inexpensive. You can get ground contact times. There really should be no excuse in today's world of sport performance without involving objective data. Now, w- one thing that, you know, you have, uh, Benny, that is really unique is that you have feel, you know, you know, when something and you have great vision in terms of what, when something looks like it's not functioning well, and it feels like it's not functioning well, and then you're adding this objective layer of data, it helps you make some pretty decent and sound decisions, you know, rather than not having those pieces alone. And, you know, if you don't like for me, I don't, I didn't have great feel. I mean, obviously if a, a athlete was doing some type of shoulder program with their shirt off, I could see that, you know, so their shoulder blade, uh, dyskinesia was, was pretty obvious. Some of those things were, were easy for me, but what I made sure is I surrounded myself with people who could give me those insights. And I think that's important too, in building, you know, a high performance staff is that people should have uh, the ability to fill in each each other's blind spots. And some people are not very good with objective data. They don't like it. They don't want to look at stats. They don't want to, you know, it's not their thing, but they might be really good with subjective visualization, you know, hands-on, you know, type of practice. And, and the combination of those people is what's going to make a sound uh, process. And I think we need to get to a place in sport where we have more opportunities for objective information to, to filter into our uh, subjective approach. And, you know, it, it, you're also looking at experience levels of professionals in the field that, uh, you know, you got some, some kids that are coming out with a master's degree 
in uh, in exercise science or or sports science, they never trained anybody, and they're missing some of that that experiential feel. But they have that high objective approach, and you know they can learn a lot from the experienced guy who might say, "Hey, I don't need your technology. You know, I don't I I don't want to deal with this technology. It's it's a headache for me. I don't I don't want to you know evaluate our athletes. You know, same kind of concept. I don't want to make them lab rats. You know." In, in from, you know, for that type of person, I say that you should not, you know, the sports scientists that might be listening to this, the coaches that are taking in data, the objective data, you should not collect anything. You should not collect anything if it doesn't directly result in programming changes. That is how you get around an athlete feeling like they're a lab rat because the things that you measure, they matter. You're, you're putting them into practice. You're creating programming off of it. You're explaining to the athlete why you're pivoting in a certain direction. And I feel what happens in sports science is it's a big t- uh, data collection hunt over a series of years to figure out what should we do with the data. By that time, you lose the athlete. You know, the athlete doesn't have much trust. I made that mistake. I collected a lot of data when I was with the Angels and the, the Orioles and didn't do very much with, with the Cardinals, but I realized there was much more data that I was handling to look at the descriptives, you know, looking at differences in players, you know, uh, differences in abilities where I, I needed to have more focus on the measurements that matter that I could directly talk to the athlete and say, hey, we're, we're changing the plyometric focus for you and your program. It's going to become more unilateral. You're becoming a little bit more bilaterally dominant, you know, things like that. I mean, that's what uh, I think our industry needs to get to when it comes to sport performance in the union of objective data. That is a place to leave it on. I think there's nothing more to add to that. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed the last hour having this conversation. It's certainly been great for me, uh, selfishly. I'm sure it's been as good for the listeners well, we'll we'll link in the show to some of your publications, some of the resources that I've been actually listening to on trains, planes, and automobiles that you put together. The Armcare IQ series, which is fantastic for those of you who haven't heard that. Small little bite-sized chunks of some of your gold in there. And and yeah, we'll link to a place where people can contact you. So actually, is there some where people can get in touch with you at the moment? Yeah. Yeah. I would love for people to get in touch with me. So LinkedIn is the best. I'm most active on it. Um, and I'm actually very new, new to social media. So I'm kind of learning my way around, but LinkedIn, I, I, I get a lot of uh, communications there. I think that's the easiest way to find me, you know, shoot me a note. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully we can connect there and uh, love to answer any questions that come about. And, you know, before we leave, you know, Ben, I want to thank you for having me on. I think the world of you, um, I'm very grateful for your influence on my career and uh, you got a great message and mission and uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much for coming on and we'll, we'll speak really, really soon. Uh, enjoy today. Thanks so much.